the idea is that we think that, oh, when I do this thing, when I accomplish this thing, I will have arrived. When I can finish this or when I can master that, I will have arrived. The very simple concept is don't spend your time focused on the moment of arrival. Spend your time focused on the curiosity, the exploration of arriving. Welcome to the Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. This is a Soul Fire production. Today on the show with us, we got Justin Nopay. Now, one of the things reflecting on having this show for approximately 11 months is I feel so grateful and blessed to have such rad friends in my life. And Justin is one of those people. And basically, you're getting to meet so many of my friends on this show. And one of the things that they all share in common is this insatiable quest to learn to better themselves. And Justin epitomizes that in my experience of him. He is an investigator through and through and his perspective on life and how he approaches so many of the topics that we go into today is really going to illustrate that. Now, he is a leadership coach in business and our focus for today all centers around the topic of learning. How do people learn? What are the role that our stories and beliefs play in how we limit our ourselves from learning? What are the different learning styles and even energizing a new perspective around that? The best environments for learning, presentation tips, how to embody being an effective learner. There is so much that we go into this show that I know is practical information that you'll be able to apply right away. So without further ado, let's get right into it. You know, in light of the conversation that you and I had this morning before mm. hopping on, there was a few questions that I'm really curious to pick your brain and your heart on, and it relates to learning. And so mm. one of the things that I'm most curious about at least to kick this off is, you know, we hear about different learning styles. We hear about kinesthetic sure. learning and visual learning and auditory learning. One, do you agree with that? Do you have a perspective on that? And then two, when does that actually to your knowledge, when does that start developing? Is that something that we're born with or when do these things start formulating in infancy or uh, adolescence? So the first thing is, is the history with this is actually quite uh, troubling. And this, there's a lot of people who intensely believe in this and intensely agree with it. The simple notion is that there's absolutely zero scientific research to back this up. There's a great video that was done by a YouTuber called uh, Veritasium. And he goes into detail in this. Um, a better way to think about it, instead of saying I'm a visual learner, I'm an audio learner, um, I'm a huge believer in embodied cognition. Mm. The brain doesn't separate out visual information from audio information. What is what is absolutely uh, transparent from all of the studies is that the more data, the better. So if you want to like really challenge yourself or push yourself, it's like try and study the same stuff, but take away all the visual elements. And then you really have to work harder to get all the audio parts. Or if naturally audio things land with you because you've uh, been able to dissect audio stuff a long time, then the visual elements, you know, just only having the visual elements allows you an aspect of challenging it. So I like to think about it as different muscle groups rather. And, you know, what you've practiced, what kind of muscles you've practiced. But just like we're talking about it now, 
um, think about it more like the brain prefers uh, prefers like whole body functional compound movements rather than isolation, mm-hmm. right? So if you want to be functional, like stop isolating your muscles and and you know doing bodybuilder esque type of work. And so um, I think that's the best way to explain it because information as we experience it isn't separated out visually, audio, kinesthetic. It all comes in this weird mix and. The more that we try and isolate it out, the more we rob ourselves of some of the richness that we actually find in it. And this goes hand in hand, almost hand in hand, uh, with something that might be quite interesting, which is that adults usually um, push themselves into containers of how they should do things in order to be professional. And one of them is like notebooks for adults usually don't have any pictures or any colors or any changing of sizes of uh, font or anything like that. And it's one of the things, the biggest things that I can promote adults to do is your brain likes color, shape, you know, changes in style and textures textures and fonts and things like that. And so how does the brain actually respond is more colorful stuff, more like kids. Jay, when you're speaking about notebooks, are you, uh, you're talking about like electronic notebooks that people are reading, you know, a book on as opposed to like an actual handwritten notebook or like a journal. Is that right? Uh, no, I'm, I, I was actually referring to like just journals and notes sure. that uh, people would use. Yeah. Cause I, I've had a couple of CEO clients, the more that they can make their, their actual journals, their notebooks look like a, almost like a fashion or artist's sketch pad, colors and shapes and sizes and little doodles and things like that. Huh. Uh, the more engaging that information becomes, and it's a lot easier for them to recall that information. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay. Now, you may know this is kind of a, a random side note, but it does relate, but I'm super colorblind. Like I'm, mm. I'm friggin' like, especially with red and green, sometimes it does cause some issues, but at the same time, <laughs> there's a different felt sense when I'm reading something with color or even just like when I've got, uh, you know, different color highlighters, like there's a different mm. felt experience, even if like part of it is grayed out or however I perceive it in my eyes, there is a mm. different participation factor. It feels like even reaching for a different pen or as I'm mm. writing with, you know, with a certain color pen. So I appreciate that you said that's really interesting. You know, it's funny that you say that because I I remember a quote, I think it's Paolo Coelho who says, uh, the learning is not the result that we get from it, but in doing the learning, we become something different as well. And so the actions that you participate in are usually the things that are going to engage the memory more than you actually finishing noting something down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. And, and bringing it back, uh, Justin, to that question of like, when do these things start taking shape? You were saying it's like a muscle that we develop. Do you happen to know when people maybe first maybe choose a dominant learning style, if that's the right way to say it? Or how do these things mm-hmm. start developing over time? It's really interesting because a lot of the time, I'm getting so excited. That my words are missing, <laughs> you get a developmental stage of cognition. So for example, like uh, a lot of your guests mention your son on, on the yeah. podcast. I'm going to mention Luca and use Luca as an example. But the idea is that object permanence is something that uh, kids have to go through like really in early, early stages. That's why you can play peekaboo with a kid because they're really like baffled that you were there one second and then all of a sudden you disappeared. And like, where did you go? Oh my gosh, you know? And um, starting to figure out object permanence. So they're not functioning with uh, the mind that actually can perceive a lot of things. As a matter of fact, like newborn babies really only perceive color, 
light, some shapes, it's more blobby. And, and a lot of the muscle formation that goes on on the outside is actually mirrored on the inside. And so you can imagine that whatever we see physically is manifested inside as well, cognitively. And so there is this concept called embodied cognition, which is the concept of like the body and the mind develop simultaneously. The body needs the mind, the mind needs the body. So this is a big one for people who believe that their mind is separate from their body. It's absolutely not. Brain-derived neurotropic factor actually, you know, is something that's stimulated and released in the in the muscles, not in the brain. So, you know, the muscles as a singling hormone, you know, becomes very interesting. So when we talk about like when do we develop these styles, you can imagine it as getting dialed in more and more as we get older and as we start to learn uh, different ways of moving our body. You bet that, you know, ways of learning and styles of actually thinking about things come in. And there's something that's very, I, I believe it needs to be said, which is this idea of, um, let's talk about without a judgment on the word, like indoctrination or conditioning is a better way to say it. Is we teach our kids, these are ways that we need you to do this. Or this is the system that we use. You've got to get used to this system. So, you know, a simple matter of writing with which hand. I mean, you could teach kids to write with both hands or to do, you know, ambidextrous things if you just told them that this was the way of doing things. But, you know, that's not that's not the, our system. That's not the, the system that's out there. And it's not their fault when they develop, let's say, a preferential style that usually comes into what they're exposed to, what they practice. And, you know, it's one of those things of use it or lose it is based on this idea of neural adaptation. And ultimately that's what it comes down to is what do we present them as stimulus to adapt to? Got it. And I don't know if you and I have chatted offline about this, but there's a documentary that I absolutely love. I haven't seen it in maybe two years or so, but I'm due for another another watch. And it's called The Motivation Factor. Has that, if you come across that one? Do you recall that? Uh, I have not. No, so sounds interesting. I'll, I'll share the premise of it and then I'd really be curious to hear your thoughts on it. So this specific documentary called The Motivation Factor, uh, I would recommend anybody uh, interested in this link between physical fitness or physical health and the connection to mental health. But what was really cool is it basically looks at a school, a Northern California school, interestingly enough, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And if I recall correctly, the school was called La Sierra or La Sierra. And they unrolled this physical education program that was then remodeled like all over the world. And they show like all these kids and they developed this system of calisthenics and gymnastics. And I mean, every single kid had like six packs and basically they followed these people later in life and they showed the correlation between, you know, physical health and physical fitness and, you know, how these kids were doing better in school and setting up routines later in life and being successful in their business uh, world. And then how they maintained this physical education, um, the same warm up that even guys were doing, I think, until their 60s or 70s later in life. So I'm really curious for you to go deeper on that connection between uh, physical health and how that can promote cognitive function and learning and that sort of stuff. Oh, there's so much. And it's it's so delicious, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one of one of the most interesting points to talk about is this idea that you know that we've got a a brain manager, right? There's a, a model of how the, the mind works based on observations called you know we've got working memory, and your working memory is basically like a, a whiteboard, and 
you know, so let's say you give me your phone number and I remember it, I put it in my working memory, I write it on the whiteboard. And then like maybe an hour later, it's it's more or less erased. Maybe it's erased just half-heartedly and you can kind of make out some numbers or, you know, the real like significant numbers are still there, but most of it's gone, right? So the working memory is one of the biggest models in in cognition and cognitive overload. And what they found is that it's really in charge of four things, which is, you know, some arithmetic, right? Some language stuff as well. Um, you know, a visual, it's called a visual sketch pad. So you can kind of like see images and pictures very quickly. But then one of them is also movement. Mm. And to a large degree, uh, the more that you exercise this, the more stimulation you get. Um, the other thing to say about this is that, uh, have you ever heard about, uh, it's called the, the the homunculus model? No, I've heard of that word, the homunculus, but I have no idea what it means. Uh, so educate okay. me, brother. What's quite interesting is when you look at the structure of the brain, there's the somatosensory cortex, which runs kind of like a, you know, um, a headband to keep your hair up. Like it runs over the top of your head, almost like you're, you know, wearing a pair of like, you know, beats by Dre or something like that. Where that, <laughs> where that head strap will go over is pretty much where we can find the somatic, the somatosensory and motosensory cortex. And the idea is that anything that's closer to the ears is actually um, a finer point detail. And the closer that we get to the center of the head on the outsides, the more it's um, for something that just requires just a very small amount of control. So the stuff that's around, you know, this, the sides of your head in the middle of your skull, like that area there is pretty much all in control of things like your fingers, fingertips, you know, manual manipulation, manual dexterity. Um, but the one that it's actually is the number one uh, most controlled place in your entire body is your face, is your mouth. You know, or you think about language being one of the most detailed things and you think about how our hands contribute to communication as well. <laughs> And it's all stimulated right there. And then, you know, as you go further up, you get things like, you know, your legs are pretty much at the top where we can't really do as much with our feet as we can do with our hands. You can't necessarily do as much. You can't, you know, it's very difficult for people to play instruments with their feet compared to their hands, you know. So um, so what's interesting is that the more you can involve uh, the parts of your brain that can stimulate as much physically as possible in any learning environment, the better it is. So if you want to go for a walk and talk, you're going to retain a lot more of that knowledge. If you want to go for, um, let's say you're learning a language, if you're out and about and you're actually using your hands to demonstrate points, it's going to be a lot more salient in the brain. It's going to be easier for that working memory to transcribe it on that whiteboard and then submit it to the long-term memory to say, hey, we need to take a picture of this. We need to store this. And that's pretty much what the data show, this idea that there's a connection between what you put on that whiteboard, how you put it on that whiteboard, how you're actually able to sync up your physical and the data together, and then you're able to uh, put it into your, uh, like I said, your long-term memory a lot stronger. And so that's literally the approach that I used when I was um, helping clients with learning languages is, you know, Okay, cool. You got to learn this phrase. So drill the phrase, but drill it in ways that are very unique um, and novel for the mouth, 
and then also add physical movements, not just to complement it. Like, uh, you know, if you're going to say thank you, you know, putting up the hands that meant thank you in that particular culture or whatever it is, you know, nod of the head or whatever. So role-playing, stimulating that and in, in your visual sketch pad as well, like imagining yourself in that situation. But then also the the concept is, is that I can then use the visual sketch pad as a model to introduce stress. And just like physical physical workouts, you can add progressive overload as well. So if I'm able to recall it quite easily, then I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take an object in my hands and throw it up and down, you know, and try and catch it and coordinate movement um, in opposition to trying to recall a phrase. And the result of that is that actually pushes you to dedicate less and less of your working memory to actually being able to recall the the phrases that you want to um, to really get automatic with. Wow, that's so interesting, and that does make sense. And one thing that that I'm curious about is, like, we hear this word focus a lot, or like removing distractions. Is that something? Because um, it sounds like you're introducing, like, you're introducing the movement component, but you're introducing, like, there's I don't know if the right way to say it is like there's a divergence of energy, maybe. But like when I think about focus, I think about like removing or being able to zone out external mm-hmm. stimuli. How do you, how does this either increase focus or how is it different than maybe how I'm interacting with focus or thinking about it right now? Um, so the best way that I found to talk about this is to say, think about actually multiple different types of focus. And so you can think about focus as in a singular focus. I've got to do this one job. It doesn't require a lot of work, um, you know, in terms of thinking and understanding and learning. It requires me to sit down and just do this thing that's incredibly mind-numbing or, you know, I'm not engaged with. So when most people talk about focus, it's usually with an activity that they're not very motivated to take part in. Totally. Totally agree. And this is where it comes down to like, we diagnose kids with like, you know, ADHD or ADD or whatever it is, some kind of like neuro uh, atypical disorder and say, oh, they're different neurologically. Actually, it's not the case. It's rather more the case that these kids are able to focus, but it's usually in something that they're incredibly passionate about. So you'll lose that kid. If you get them down a curiosity rabbit hole, you'll lose them for like six hours. They'll be gone. (laughs) It'll be the only thing that they can focus on. And I'm sure as an adult, you can relate to that. And you're like, oh yeah, I've had something like this. This is kind of like this absolute focus hole, which you've gone in and no one can distract you. And it's been absolute joy to go down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And so that would be a different type of focus. And And this is where, like, actually my evolution in learning came to this point where emotions matter more with learning than does, you know, like any of the other things that we're told. Um, and that's usually because the same old nonsense that we're, we're told in, in terms of learning are like, oh, this is the way to learn. Yeah. You know, basically summarize your textbook, rewrite it, highlight important parts. You know, you're basically like rewriting something. You're parrot scripting something in your own words. But even then, that, that's a lot of work for very little output in terms of uh, permanent learning. I mean, most people who learn like that you know, years later, you go to them and they can't remember anything that they've put in their brain like that. And usually the the most impactful memories are things that connect with uh, strong negative or strong positive emotions. And so without going to the strong negative, like, well, 
I don't know about you, but I'd rather not be traumatized every time I want to learn something. <laughs> yeah. So what are the levers that we can pull? And it turns out to be like, um, there's actually a, an entire movement of positive psychology out there that says that we can truly like increase positive psychology to become a resource within us. And so that's how I work with people now is, is working with those because then we start to see real creativity, real curiosity, and focus just comes out of that very naturally. And so, you know, stoking the fires of curiosity to ask questions that really engage someone. But, you know, and this is the, this is a bit prescriptive and I'm sure a lot of teachers might, might hate on me for this, but in the current education system we have is more about managing kids than about stoking the fire to their curiosity. Getting them interested in something? No, it's more like getting them to do it. And if they don't do it, it's demerits. It's, but it's again, so it's not the kid's fault because they haven't gone down a route where they've had a teacher that's really engaged that fire. And if they were lucky enough to have one teacher or two teachers, you know, it, it is incredibly lucky. And they recall a lot. That was a very impactful time for them. So, I mean, did you have a teacher that you connected with like that? I was just thinking about that. And it's so funny. I haven't <laughs> thought about this guy in a while, but uh, Mr. LaSalle from seventh grade, like uh, Mrs. Smith from like uh, kindergarten. Like I absolutely, I honestly don't have as much recollection of the subject. Maybe it was history, maybe, but I remember loving being in that class mm-hmm. and loving uh, just the whole, it's the stories they would tell and just more than anything, what's coming up right now, I don't really even recall the exact things that we learned, but I remember how I felt about learning, like being taught by them and being in that environment. That's what I remember. And I do remember their names. Yes. I, and and this, is, um, this goes back into the credence. So we talked about embodied cognition, the idea that somehow your body and your mind and learning are very physical things and they're all connected. The more you can utilize them, the better it is. And what's a step up from that is actually social cognition. And this is one of the biggest things that I find uh, is a different belief between me and let's say the rest of the coaching realm or well, most people in general, I think it's a, a genuine misconception or like, let's say it's a, it's a hill that I will stake my flag on and die on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's this idea that we developed uh, our thinking minds to be able to manage social relationships. We're a tribal animal, right? We seek out communities and we want to help and we want to create friendships and partnerships and things like that. We are a tribal animal. And the idea is that actually when you are learning something, um, there was a study done out of Maine. Um, I forget it, but basically they showed like a pyramid of like how much you can actually recall from learning in particular manners. Like if you just read it, it's like 5%, but reading and listening, it was like, oh, okay, 10% or 20% or whatever. And of course, the one where you're going to remember like the majority of the actual session is the session that you get to discuss socially and meaningfully and have meaningful discussions in a group with peers that actually sticks in your mind far more than any formal study method that you can actually have. Now you tell me how many schools actually utilize that concept. No, no, it's be quiet, sit at a desk and, and be, you know, taught at, um, and yeah. And, and then, you know, you still get great schools out there. Like, you know, we were talking uh, about like Montessori schools and things like that, but they develop uh, creativity more than they develop, let's say, a, a social cohesion, you know? Mm-hmm. So again, you know, it's, 
in my opinion, it's, it's still a better approach, but it's still slightly off the mark. Interesting. I would love to apply what you're saying or hear how you might apply it to something. You'd use the word like traumatized. And I think one of the most scary things or traumatizing whatever that so many people have fears about, myself included at times for sure, is public speaking or giving a presentation. And so if you are working with someone, let's let's maybe put language aside. I think that's fascinating. And I think though when it comes to giving a presentation, whether it's in school or, um, I don't know, a business presentation or a pitch, what are the things that you might invite someone in addition or, or, or to what you're saying to support someone in really feeling more empowered and recalling whether it's their points that they want to make? How can they be a better presenter and, and learn and, and share their information more effectively? Mm, one of the biggest things uh, that really makes a difference for most people is how are you currently framing public speaking? Mm. You know, what's the story uh, that, that, yeah. Okay. So, you know, if I bring this back to the working memory, the working memory relates to something called schema. And that's just a fancy way of saying, what are you connecting in the world that goes together? So for example, mm. if I wrote a couple of things on a whiteboard, you might say, oh, that is Italian. And in your brain, it goes into the Italian box. And another one, you're like, oh, that looks like a math formula. I'm going to put that in the math box. Mm. And another one is like, oh, that looks like a scientific formula. I'm going to put that into like the chemistry box. You sorting all of this information into like these boxes is what exactly schema is. And the idea is that most people keep those boxes that they've had throughout their entire lives in terms of this is what conventional thinking looks like or what's called neural convergence. You know, the idea that everybody thinks in the same way or has the same boxes for everything. And so one of the biggest things that I do is I bring an alternative or an unconventional point of view to the table and say, okay, let's first identify what box you're using. Oh, you're identifying it as like, I'm not a good speaker. Okay, well, let's put that into a different box. And let's just say, I haven't practiced speaking. Mm. It's that simple. Mm. I haven't flexed this muscle. So instead of a characteristic, it's actually, it's a muscle. It's not a trait that is in you that is somehow genetic that you're predisposed to. That's part of your destiny and your character. It's just a muscle. And so just like you don't go into a gym and try and pick up the, the, the heaviest amount of weight possible on day one, you know, you're going to, you're going to injure yourself and traumatize yourself. So how about we just take a step back and we say, what are you at right now? And let's add plus one to that. And it's something that um, there's a very famous uh, educational psychologist called Vygotsky, and he called it the zone of proximal development. Mm. And it's this idea of like, you need to get, think about it as this, physical training goes in reps, uh, uh, reps of, uh, sorry, a rate of perceived exertion, right? Mm. RPE. And when you get to like a six or a seven, you should feel strong and confident, but that this is challenging for you. Sure. Right. And so what you want is like an RPE of six or seven when you're when you're approaching something. So if a person has to give like a TED talk and they're absolutely wetting themselves because it's way <laughs> beyond, you know, then it's a matter of like, okay, we need to do damage control and we need to stagger things so that we can show you with progressive overload that you absolutely have the skill for this. So let's let's develop skills. Let's develop your uh, your memory, your confidence, whatever it is. And so working with them based on these principles of like, okay, you've got a competition that you have to go to. How do we get you competition ready? 
by that time and work backwards. How much time do we have? What events do we need to put in? How much recovery do you need? And so I literally worked with a, um, she's a best-selling author now, and she did a TED talk last year and she, she wasn't able to memorize stuff, but she is also a, um, you know, a speaker by trade. She's a keynote speaker. So speaking wasn't her problem. Memory was. So it was the same thing. It was like, okay, cool. Well, let's work on working memory, specifically like managing all these things. And I gave her all the distraction protocols. You know, you have to um, film yourself so that you've got good cues, you know, just like you would film yourself if you were doing, let's say, barbell snatch work, you know, for Olympic lifting, <laughs> you know, so you'd have to pay attention to your cues. Don't worry about your performance, just perform naturally. And afterwards, let's take a look and then let's train what we don't want there. And let's emphasize what we do want there. And then let's also make sure that we're distracting yourself at, you know, uh, input plus one or stimulus plus one and just go a little bit like, is that intense? Yes. Is it too intense? No. Okay, cool. Is it manageable? Yes. And you can always tell when someone is overloaded cognitively because, um, you will see it in their face. You know, if you ask someone and it comes back to language learning, it's the easiest way to see it because people get overloaded so quickly. You're like, what was that phrase in Italian? It was, um, uh, uh, and so you can hear them umming and awing. And that usually means that the mind is overloaded. There's too much going on. Right. But the, the second thing is if there are no ums and ahs, you're going to see the eyes darting across sideways, like, um, you know, side to side, um, as they're searching for this thing that the brain isn't ready to give them. So it comes back down to, again, how much have we automated? How much can we manage stress? plus whatever skill it is that I'm trying to pull out of my brain as well. And so that's usually what happens with a lot of people when they come up to like a task that they have to do. So again, we bring this right back down to, let's say, performing a speech or speaking in front of a group or something like that. It comes back down to number one is how do we manage stress in this particular environment when you actually have to come out with um, you know, some type of language output? And most of the time, it's about automating it with stress so that part of your brain is actually free in the moment to handle any weird stuff that comes up, you know, like people coughing or the the screen not working. It's actually not a stress. And if we go backward to our conversation that we just mentioned as well about like the body, the body actually prepares the mind for stress a lot. So there's a lot of data that's out there that shows that, you know, resistance training actually adds to more resiliency when it comes to stress and overwhelm at work. Or that, you know, doing a form of cardio like zone two or, you know, it's basically any of the physical training that we take. When we take it to extremes, we're training the body to be more resilient and to deal and cope better with stress, to respond to stress better because we've taken ourselves there physically already. And the body doesn't know the difference between the, the sympathetic activation, that stress hormone activation. It doesn't know the difference between I'm standing on stage versus I'm throwing 100 kilograms above my head. And, uh, so we come back to this idea of like, when you do the extreme versions, like pushing yourself, you're taking yourself to a place of stress and your body is now familiar with it and not that scared. So the response isn't that strong mm -hmm. and the recovery is a lot faster. But if you do the smaller versions of it, it's actually more activating. So if you do like zone two to cardio instead of threshold VO2 max threshold training, you know, um, you're, you're actually stimulating more blood flow and things like that, which actually would give you better output cognitively on that day as well. Better learning connections. Um, just like if you went to the gym and you did something at an RPE of six. And so you left the gym feeling energized with uh, a feeling of like, I feel strong. I feel confident. That was a good session. 
you know, those that it, it didn't, you know, empty the tank. And the response of that type of session on the brain is phenomenal. Interesting. And that's, you know, when I'm reflecting on my own training right now, and for the last while, that's been such a focus. One, I'm not really competing. So once in a while, I love to push it to see where I'm at and just the the emotional things that can come with that, especially when you do it in a group and with guys or or training partners. But this that therapeutic dose um, mm. feels really good. And I actually like one of my, one. Of, it might sound weird, but well, I don't know if this even really applies, but one of my favorite things to do, it's going to sound weird, is I love like... I'll play, um, I don't know, a lecture or something that I want to learn in the garage and I'll have a training implement. Maybe it's a Bulgarian bag or a kettlebell or some other implement. And then I do laundry. And so I like go through this circuit of just like folding some clothes, like moving as I'm listening and training. And it's just like this, you know, that, that lighter RPE, but I feel like I'm the things that you're talking about of engaging the body, but also it's so much more, I can retain so much more than if I just like lit, sat down here in a, a sterile environment in my office and just listened. Oh, like it just, 100%. it's yeah. so, so different. You know, it was so funny that you're actually saying that because I think this is half the, the problem that I've got with classrooms that sit kids down mm. for hours on end. Mm. And, you know, you don't stimulate the body in the learning environment. So when I was in the classroom setting and I was teaching people, I would have them stand up like every two minutes just because it energized people. As soon as you start to see people yawning, it's not because they're not interested. Huh. I mean, we've all had that experience that we're sitting there and we're yawning. And it's usually because our posture then like puts pressure on our lungs and our diaphragm and we're not getting enough oxygen. We start falling a little bit asleep, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not because we're not engaged. And it's very typically because the body is like, oh, I'm tired now. So I'm like, great, let's stand up. Let's move around a little bit. Why don't you go talk to your partner? Tell your partner what's the most interesting part of what we just learned or what did you think about this or how can we apply it? And, you know, asking them those kinds of questions. And, um, you know, like I got sick and tired of having to do this and fighting the, uh, the conventional kind of educational model that I, I branched out on my own. And, you know, it's funny that you're also mentioning this because there is this concept of heightened stress. So there was a study that was done that showed that it was after 18 hours, the brain starts shutting down in terms of its ability to focus. Right. So when people say I'm going to stay up and then pull an all nighter, it's the dumbest thing ever. You know, it never works. Sleep, absolutely much needed. But being creative, actually staying up and being creative might be, you know, the data show there might be some benefits to this as well, because all the nerves and especially the neurological pathways that yet you've got like very well greased, shall we say, um, the myelin sheath, the insulation that stops those nerves from connecting with other nerves, that myelin sheathing has to be replaced and replenished. And basically throughout the day, it wears down and it erodes, which means at night, after let's say 18 hours, you start to have these weird thoughts about how these things could connect together because your myelin sheath is so thin that it starts crossing over into weird realms. So that can be quite, become quite interesting. And my theory, and I really want to want to push this, but I mean, you know, you just don't have the time and you're busy with <laughs> regular life and everything, is running people through this where you only start drilling language learning at 18 hours, but to be as focused as possible, as disciplined as possible, because the connections that happen at those moments when everything is mixed up, uh, it, the data suggests 
that that would then be, you know, during sleep, that would actually be connected stronger than if it were done with a, um, a fresh brain. Interesting. Almost like there's the body or is more suggestible maybe in those hours, like more impressionable mm-hmm. maybe. The rate, of, the rate of mistakes is going to go up exponentially. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is why you have to be super disciplined. I mean, it might not work because it might be that you're, you feel like you're doing great work. And then the next morning you realize that what you've done is inputted like a whole bunch of nonsense into, into your brain. And then, you know, but uh, it's definitely something that's on my list of like experiments, <laughs> you know, to do, tick, you know, the crazy uh, 24-hour learning, shall we say, yeah. I'm, I'm in, bro. Count, count me in for that. <laughs> Man, I am loving this topic and this theme that we are going into today. It is very near and dear to my heart because the archetype of the guide or the facilitator, the coach, and I know they're slightly different, just really speaks to my heart and is something that I've really resonated with since I was about 14 years old and started coaching. Now, most of my coaching and my study started in fitness and performance to better my performance, but then very importantly, as I realized later down the road, the role that I was playing in supporting others in their journey. And that is why, for example, a program that I created called Kettlebell Lifestyle, I really put my entire heart and soul into that. That program is the closest thing from a movement perspective to working side by side with me. Every single day that you perform a workout, there's what's called a training readiness assessment that looks at key markers of stress and modifies your program volume, the reps and the sets based off of how you're feeling on a given day so that you know how to adjust and you learn within your body, your mind, your heart, how hard to push it and when backing off is needed. And there's an incredible amount of, of course, kettlebell tutorials, but there's also breath work, morning routines, personalized stretching plans, working in exercises. It is the most truly holistic kettlebell program out there that at least I'm aware of. And it stems from my entire life experience of being a coach and an athlete for the vast majority of my life. If you are interested in exploring kettlebell lifestyle and even hopping on a call with me to see if it is the right fit for you, that is so important to me, go ahead and just click the link in the bio. Uh, You'll be able to see the Kettlebell Lifestyle landing page to learn all about it. You can use code PATH20 for 20% off. And if you would like to schedule a 20-minute one-on-one call with me to see if it is truly the right fit for you and where you're at right now and your goals, just go ahead and write support at mikesalemi.io and just go ahead in the subject line, put Kettlebell Lifestyle one-on-one. Now let's get back to the show. And on a thread that you were just sharing, so let's say, let's let's pick a situation and it applies to exactly what you were just going into. Let's say that tomorrow, tomorrow, I've got a presentation or something coming up. So maybe there's not this time. I, I really do appreciate the correlation or the, the connection to exercise because that makes sense a lot with me and I imagine with a lot of the listeners. And what if you don't have uh, you don't have adequate time or a phase to start breaking things down and reviewing tape or what if let's say we've got 24 hours or less or it's the day of and you can't remember your points what would you say is the most important or the minimum effective dose of something to support getting someone on stage and presenting and feeling more confident or competent 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's spoken like a true one. Such a talk. (laughs) 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 No, no, no. It's, it's absolutely valid. Like, you know, how do we apply what we're talking about? You know, there's a tattoo that I've got on my arm of a hand with an eye, uh, sorry, a a hand with an eye in the, in the palm. Mm. And the idea is about this idea of insight means nothing without action and action means nothing without insight. And so how can we put action to something like this? And so I literally have um, what I call the three the three measurements, which is a binary yes or no, quality, scale of one to 10, and then a final one of feeling. And so anyone who's at beginning, let's say it's the first time that you've done a presentation, you're super nervous about it. The simple one of binary of like yes or no is the most important. And so taking taking this and let's making it a little bit more applicable, I want you to think about someone who has never been to the gym and there's the the idea of going to the gym and starting exercising is so complex. It's so overwhelming for them. There's so many things to think about. Do I train uh, calisthenics, you know, powerlifting, bodybuilding, you know, CrossFit, uh, or do I just go in and just gamble about like a couple of my friends, or um, you know, do I do kettlebells or suplex bags, or you know, <laughs> how about the Indian clubs, the mace, you know, things like that. So th- there's an overwhelming amount of choice. And so a simple matter of just asking the question of, did you go in to the gym? Yes or no? Becomes the most important part. Once you've got that, then you can ask questions like, did you do a push, a pull, you know, motion? And then did you do a squat and a hinge motion? You know, so we can give people these kind of general goals to strive for, to get complexity um, under wraps, you know, to get a little bit of a mastery thing going with this type of um, concept. And so if you've got 24 hours, the number one goal that I'm going to go for is this idea of number one, connect with your audience. You know, don't be afraid of your audience, being able to come in and own the audience. And that comes with also the idea of owning silence. Mm. And so it seems a little bit like counterintuitive, but owning silence is just a simple matter of counting in your head. just like I did there, right? So counting in your head is about owning that silence. Often when I'm coaching people as well, I'm so excited and I just want to talk more and I just want to get into it with them. And I have to do this all the time. You know, they give me an answer and I count in my head to five and okay, all right, they're still going. Okay, let them go, let them go, let them go. Okay, they just finished speaking. Okay, count to five. Okay, they haven't said anything. Yeah, that was... um, it must be very difficult, you know, and then you go into your acknowledge and validating, just counting to five, owning that space, all of a sudden professionality, you know, professionalism increases. Yeah. What is that comfort. doing? What is that doing? Yeah. You said professionality. What else is owning that silence doing? Um, it's very important to understand across the world how different languages and different cultures respond to silence. Mm. So your, your Asian languages like Japanese and Chinese, Korean, silence is a very strong way of speaking. Um, whereas your Latin languages, silence must be filled, right? And then, you know, as we come into other cultures, like British culture is somewhere between, um, you know, a European culture and a Japanese culture. And then American culture is very much in between, let's say, uh, German culture with logic, um, where we speak when we need to, we don't speak when we don't need to. And uh, a Latin culture, which is very much like let's fill 
has filled the air with opinions and talk and sound. And so the idea of silence is very important in all cultures because it's a fundamental part of communication. And the way that we use silence is very different from the way other people use silence. So first question is, who's your audience? If your audience is going to be someone from your culture or not, there are going to be cultural ways of presenting well. Now, let's just take American culture, you know, and look at that and say that silence is usually used to create a type of anticipation as well. I totally relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And when I think about that uh, growing up, I was just thinking about my dad and there is, there is also tremendous power you know, in, in addition, like connected to what you're saying, mm-hmm. like I've, he's, he's got that mastered almost to an uncomfortable level, or at least for me sometimes, like it's just pure silence. And then it's like, the point is so driven home <laughs> that it creates almost anxiety, you know, within me. And, uh, you know, I've always felt he's quite mastered that. And, uh, mm. it's been, it's been something I very much have felt growing up for sure. Beautiful. So what else, brother? Um, just very quickly on the silence note, it's actually connected with social intelligence as well. The, the more a person is able to be comfortable with silence, it almost speaks to the less validation they need from a social group or social peers. And the more somebody fills that silence or tries to fill that silence, it almost creates like a distrust or an unease as well with people. Of course, you know, I'm speaking very, very much in general terms, but reflecting on silence as it relates to social relationships. It can be very interesting to see who needs validation, who doesn't need validation, who's comfortable in their own skin, who's not comfortable, you know, who's excited, who's not excited, you know, who's trying to spread the excitement. So that, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. So if we come back, it's just the idea of holding five points in their mind. That's it. Five points. Mm. The story flows from point one to point two, to point three, to point four, to point five, anything more than five points and you're lost. So if you remember exactly what those five points are, you're fine. You'll be able to speak for 30 minutes in front of an audience because it doesn't ma- matter if you babble too much or something like that. Because then owning the audience is about pointing out that you just babbled, having a laugh at yourself and allowing them to laugh with you rather than creating the kind of the distance between you and the audience and being like, oh my God, I'm babbling. <laughs> oh my God, they probably think I'm an idiot, you know? <laughs> and one, one of my favorite scenes in Austin Powers, have you, do you remember Austin Powers? Yes. We, we, yeah, keep going. Yeah, the first one, when he gets unfrozen, they're like, how do I tell them I have no inner monologue? (laughs) And that that is almost like a perfect example of something to do is, you know, it doesn't, you you don't have to be self-deprecating, but just pointing out, you know, what everybody knows allows others to be at ease. Hmm. To show that you're at ease with something as well allows others to be at ease. It's part of our social empathy. So I get people to focus on those two points of understanding the social intelligence of the situation is the first point. And that's a little bit unconventional because conventional kind of thoughts around this would have you practice and drill your speech again and again and again. Like, that's fine. You can automate it like that, but you're not going to get past that initial point. And so let's talk about diving into the positive psychology. Why are you here? Why are you speaking? Chances are it's to share something that you really believe in. Something that's part of your, uh, you know, it sounds cheesy to say the heart's desire, something that's in your spiritual vision of like, I am here to talk about this thing that I believe is really important. And 
remembering that and connecting with that is going to push me forward and my life life mission forward, which is ultimately to serve others. And I don't know how, however you cut it, everybody's life mission is always in the service of the tribe, the greater community that they want to belong to. I really appreciate that, Jay. I really do. With that, one of the things that comes up as a curiosity is, would it be beneficial to, so you, you know, knowing your audience, connecting with your audience, owning the silence, you know, learning these five points or remembering these five points so you can drop into maybe even the intuition uh, of the situation, your own intuition to connect uh, with what's most helpful in the moment. And you had said earlier about one of the best ways that we learn is through discussion and stuff like that. So would you recommend if there's an if there's a time period to like drop in with a friend? Okay, I'm going to give this com- you know this presentation in the next few hours to discuss with them. Is that something that that would aid in that as well? Absolutely. You know, a couple of people that I've trained to um, you know give these presentations to. I'm like, how much can we actually create a simulation of the environment you're going to be in? So if you're going to give a talk in front of 100 people, what's the number where you stop seeing individual people and you start seeing a crowd of people? Okay. You know, and it's usually like 10 plus. You know, after after 10 people, a crowd is a crowd. It doesn't matter if it's 80 to a couple hundred. You know, and I'm speaking from my own experience as well of speaking on stages and being in front of crowds of people. After five, six people, it starts to become a blob, a mass. And, you know, whatever you felt with a small blob or a small mass, you still feel with a big mob or a big mass, the interaction patterns then become interesting as well. So, you know, it's the idea, it's called um, scrimmage, basically, a rehearsal, a test run, a uh, friendly game where you're more or less simulating the environment as much as you can, but there are no stakes. There are no consequences. I love that, man. That's actually, that's super helpful. And, uh, it's funny because in preparation, for example, for the men's retreat, I'm going to be leaving tomorrow. No, the next day to our men's retreat. And it's one thing that's been really cool with myself and the facilitators. Because one of the one of the things that we do at these events is to challenge ourselves with new things that we're learning and things that we're growing into. So the much of the as much of the facilitation process is parallel to the things that are most exciting to us that we feel might be most beneficial for the group that we have. And we've been a pretty regular of like meeting and getting to just amongst ourselves in a safe place, present and practice mm-hmm. and hear feedback. And if anything, it's just been such a such a helpful container to to practice. And and I've noticed it directly carry over into the ease and the ability to drop into the environment and tune into my intuition and feel more relaxed when presenting to the group. One question, Justin, when it comes to like, for example, if you've developed a level of mastery in one area, let's just say the gym or someone's fitness routine, but they're really struggling with transferring that mastery to a different area of their life. Um, maybe it's uh, they feel very confident and competent with, again, their workout routine or their communication in a relationship, but they continually struggle with their relationship with money or learning how to manage money. How do you help someone who maybe is very high level in one area, but there's this big imbalance between some other area of their life that they're having difficulty like maybe transferring that skill set or what they've learned in one area. Yeah, that's 
It's a great question, Mike. And there's so many times that uh, you get people like this. And the result of them feeling like this is usually that they judge themselves very harshly as well. Sure. Like, I'm so good at this. Why am I not great at that thing as well? And why is this not crossing over here? And one of the starting steps is to create a type of distance between that self-talk and that judgment Mm. about themselves. Just speaking quickly more on that is the idea that humans have been shown to have uh, something that I call meta-emotion. You know, it's this, this idea that we can observe ourselves and the observer is one of the highest transfer skills that we can actually develop. The way that we observe ourselves with kindness, compassion, empathy, changing our, our self-talk, specifically the observer who's observing us, like getting angry is okay, right? Getting angry, if, I, if I'm getting angry and then the observer part of me says, but I shouldn't get angry. Like, why are you getting angry? You're losing control versus, oh, that's, look, it's okay to get angry. Just make sure that you're not taking it too far. Why don't you just feel that emotion, apologize afterwards. We can look at it, but you know, when we've got time to reflect and go deeper into it. So the meta emotion, the emotion you feel about the emotion is usually, a, uh, it's a compounding effect. It really will just pound you down, wear you down and grind you down. And that is the strongest skill that I can help people with developing, that any, any coach or any person can help another person to develop our self-talk. And so I spend a lot of time on that, the observer perspective, I call it. You know, a lot of my, uh, like my, my guided meditations, they're visualizations because actually practicing these types of things and viewing yourself in those ways is uh, something that can transfer to every area of your life. So that's one of the, the biggest points that I've got there. Um, and helping a person to cre- just to create some distance, to get some breathing room for not being too hard on themselves, number one. Number two is this idea of coming back to musculature again. There's no such thing as character traits. It's character musculature. There's no such thing as personality traits. It's personality musculature. I'm not an introvert. I have practiced you know, hiding myself away, and I haven't practiced socializing. And so doing something where people say, oh, I'm an introvert because it takes energy from me to socialize. Well, that's just because you haven't automated, just like it would take energy from you to learn something that doesn't feel comfortable yet. You know, it takes a lot of cognition to be able to focus. So in the same set, when you get good at anything, we start to automate it and we start to create a lot less demand on the, the working memory. And so you can actually manage it and have a conversation and play a game of chess or whatever. You know, you can do multiple things at the same time. That usually comes out of your ability to really automate um, something. Now, Again, when someone has a very high level of skill, let's say they're very successful, but their relationship is in you know, smoking ruins. The, the concept is, is that, number one, is how are they judging themselves? And number two is then presenting this idea of musculature and asking them how often have they practiced certain wow. muscles. And so this is where we get into what I found and why I've moved away from teaching people how to be better learners. What I found was the greater or the greatest thing that blocks them from being a good learner is actually their own judgments about themselves, the learning, the subject matter, whatever it is. And so that's where I I decided I want to get qualified and I got my certification with coaching. I got accredited with the International Coaching Federation as well because helping people here, all of a sudden you see cascading effects further down the road as well. And so 
the more that they can understand what's going on. And so you, we talked earlier on about boxes, about you know information comes into your brain and you put it in this box and that box. People usually have the wrong boxes when it comes to emotions and when it comes to, you know, so one box is this idea that there is no good or bad emotion. And it sounds a little bit like woo-woo to say that, but let's examine it a little bit closer and say every emotion has a purpose or had a purpose. So you getting angry, how old you know, is that emotion making you feel right now? I feel like a child. I feel like I'm back home with my mom and my dad. Sure, because that's when it was necessary for you to get angry, to feel that you're somehow protecting yourself. Safety, security, you know, value. That's, that's your reaction to a stressful situation where your needs weren't being met. So what, what did your brain do is your brain practiced that and created more and more myelin sheath around that neural pathway reaction to a simulated event. The result of that is that now it's an automated response. And once you give people that kind of box to put their behavior in, they're like, oh, yeah. And it's like, look, this is where I challenge a lot of our mutual friends. Um, you know, who are coaches, who are people who have done a lot of, you know, personal development work. And the point is more awareness. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting here thinking the natural state of the brain is to automate things so that we don't have to be aware because awareness is a very expensive thing. It is a very expensive thing to always be aware all the time. You know, imagine learning something every single day that it's a lot of energy. And as humans, we don't do this. You know, what we look for is ways to mitigate that, that expansive stuff. So it's very valuable to challenge yourself, but just like the gym, you shouldn't be in the gym 24 hours a day, you know, or 16 hours a day. You know, there's an appropriate amount of stimulus an appropriate amount of relaxation, automation. And so in the same vein, if we come back to our um, hypothetical person who's struggling, it's identify where they are as well in their emotional scale, give them better boxes, mm. you know, to be able to understand themselves in and create a little bit of breathing room. And then after that, it starts to become this, where are you? Okay. Let's add progressive overload, a plus one to do some work, to take you a little bit further and develop that muscle a little bit better. Dude, I super appreciate what you've shared. That's incredibly valuable. And what it feels like for me is it, you and I were talking before we we hopped on about this word, like empowerment. It really mm. feels uh, how I'm receiving. It just feels like more like what's possible now is is more readily accessible. And this feeling of empowerment. And so, yeah, man, I super appreciate everything that you shared. And as we transition, is there any final words that you would like to share in terms of supporting someone in their learning journey, whether it's mitigating, you know, a major roadblock for them or kind of like your one big takeaway if you would leave someone with? The best thing that I can say is you will never arrive. You will never arrive. And, and that doesn't, yeah, that's, I suppose I mean that to be quite provocative and quite, <laughs> you know, like quite a finger in a jab in the ribs, you know? The idea is that we think that, oh, when I do this thing, when I accomplish this thing, I will have arrived. When I can finish this or when I can master that, I will have arrived. And if you think about the, the amount of time in your life that you have in the past arrived, and you gather it all together and you put it into a pile, my bet is that it's not even going to 
measure up to be a full day's worth of moments of arriving. It'll be a minute here, a minute there, a minute there where you felt those things. And the rest of the time was a huge kind of push, a struggle just to arrive, just to get to this kind of like, ah, relief, I'm here, excellent. But the thing is, is the human brain doesn't necessarily see that. And no one is going to pitch up and start taking photos and be like, Mike, you arrived. How does it feel? <laughs> you know, microphone in your face. And, and you're like, well, thanks everybody. I want to thank my mom and my dad. And like, as soon as people do those Oscar acceptance speeches, award acceptance speeches, the very next conversation that someone says to them and says, so what are you going to do now? Yes. You know, and you're like, what do you, like, can't I just have this moment? So this point of, you will never arrive. Okay, well, that's really dark, Justin. What do I do with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's not dark. It's beautiful because the very simple concept is don't spend your time focused on the moment of arrival. Spend your time focused on the curiosity, the exploration of arriving and be like, if I, if I spend my time just trying to attain a goal for the rest of my life and I never reach that goal, how can that still be a life well-lived? and enjoyable and fun and interesting and just stimulating and fulfilling and all of the positive adjectives that we can kind of come up with, you know, there's no such thing as positive or negative, but there's this idea of like comfortable and what we strive for, what we desire. And it's weird that people who don't exercise, when they try and go into the gym and exercise, they hate it. But people who have developed a taste for it, oh my gosh, you try and keep them out of the gym one day and they'll be crying. They'll be like, I just want to go out. I want to feel my muscles, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it is definitely developed an acquired taste of learning to strive for something. And just that, that slight edge, that 1% better every time is something to be proud of. And when you look back, you've, you've walked a hundred miles, you've climbed a mountain, you've started a job, you've saved a life, you've saved a relationship, whatever it is. But the idea is that it never ends. And it, it, it shouldn't end. And when it ends, the ride's over. Mm. So my advice is never arrive. Never arrive. Always strive, never arrive. <laughs> That's brilliant, brother. Thank you Thank so you. much. And It's on my coffee mug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Justin, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you, whether it's for coaching or I know you have a podcast as well, if they just want to learn more about what you're up to and and potentially, you know, hire you one-on-one -on -one or any of the work that you're doing to support people. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mike. Um, and, you know, before I give all of that, I just want to say that, you know, my focus is on, like I said, social intelligence is one of the biggest things that I've seen that a lot of people don't acknowledge. And so I really appreciate the kind of stuff that you do with like the men of movements and, and where you're taking your path in particular as well as something that I keep looking at. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. That's great, you know, because it really is socially minded and it must be very fulfilling for you as well. So I appreciate mm. what you're doing and what you're putting out, you know, so big up. Thank you. Um, yeah, my website, um, justinnope.com and people are free to, um, you know, to take a look there and book a call with me if you want to. If that seems too, too daunting, you know, there's always, <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot of material and content out there that people can consume with me, but you know, they're more than, I'm more than happy for people to reach out and say, found you here and just start messaging and start the conversation. Because there's usually no strings attached and there's nothing about it. It's just all about like, how do I offer value? So I've, I, I say, yeah, my website, justinnope.com, people can reach out to me, start the conversation and yeah, that's it. And knowing you as a friend for anyone who's listening, I can confirm that that's just who 
Justin is, you know, in the Enneagram, he's a type five. So that's the investigator, <laughs> the person who loves learning. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate how you show up. So when, when he says that, I know it's genuine. So thank you for everything that you shared, brother, and uh, really appreciate you uh, supporting me and supporting our audience. Absolutely, Mike. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours. 